Well, good morning, everyone, and it's uh, lovely to be back here, as they say, <laughs> with everyone, even if it is virtual. Uh, we are starting, as Barry has said, a new series on the Book of Ruth. Very interesting book because of very interesting times, similar to our own, and lots of things going wrong around them, and lots of hope within it. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are sovereign, that whatever we do and see and say is in your hands. And so we ask that you would open my mouth with your words, that you would open our hearts and our ears as we listen here in our own homes, and that you, through your Holy Spirit, would speak, and not just speak, but change our lives and continue to give us the strength, comfort, and encouragement that only you can supply in Jesus' name. Amen. Ruth chapter 1. Her name was Lillian. She was in her late 90s and uh, had a Scouse accent. I met her at lunch at John and Claire's farmhouse near Barachalk after preaching at their morning service in the Baptist church. So how did you end up here, I asked her. She told her story. As a teenager during the war, she came here from Liverpool and worked in a farm in the border of Wiltshire and Dorset. As a land girl, some of you may not know what that is, but a land girl was an army of female volunteers who kept our agriculture going during the war while the men were away. She met a young man from the village, fell in love, married, and lived in a traditional cottage. And she remained there for the rest of her life. The locals made fun of her accent, and they referred to her as the foreigner, a northerner, a scouser. Do you know that never went away, she was telling us, even after over 70 years living in that village. Now, our story today is about another young girl, and her name is Ruth. And the setting is Bethlehem, at least for the start of the story, and then we move into Moab for a brief while. And she was referred in Bethlehem as the foreigner. In fact, they went even further. They used the M word, the Moabite. And of course, Ruth, what is your story? Well, it takes place around the time of the judges, difficult days for Israel. After Joshua's victorious campaigns and going through Jericho and all that, Israel entered the promised land and they worshipped the God of Abraham and their ancestors and they prospered and thrived. Then they got complacent, copied the wicked ways of the nations around them and the neighbours that they had. And above all, they forsook the God of their fathers and the one that Moses had explained. Now, Bethlehem means the house of bread. It was the breadbasket of Judah with well-stocked fields of barley, of wheat, and of vineyards, and long before angels and shepherds came to the town. But now the house of bread was empty. A famine descended in the country. Farmers went bankrupt. Families were divided. Disease stopped the land. The country was experiencing God's judgment for its sin. You see, Moses had taught them a song, and it had warned them not to abandon the God who made them. 
And the threat was this in the song that they had learned, and I'll quote, I will send wasting famine upon them, consuming pestilence and deadly disease. Some think we are experiencing God's judgment today in this land. You know, we're the sixth most wealthy nation in the world. We're prosperous, but we're faithless. We're proud, yet shameless in our sin. Our children aren't taught anymore at school about the creator that made them. Our laws disrespect God's laws. We're no longer taught about the Bible stories of Jesus and our empty celebrity culture dominates our news. False news and gossip distorts the truth. Bible says righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach against any people. Is this pandemic a judgment from God? When a Roman general entered the city after a great victory, he was accompanied by an origa. Every time the general received a compliment and got a bit proud as he was walking through the streets, the origa would walk up to him and whisper into his ear, memento mori, which means remember death. The Bible teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of that sin is death. This is our just desert for sin, not specific sins, but sin in general, the principle that we all have. Diseases, famines, natural disasters, suffering and pain are all part of God's pressure point on mankind to remind us of our sinful state. But ultimately, the enemy is death. Because, as the Bible says, it is appointed to man once to die, but after that, the judgment. Hebrews chapter 9. So, while this disease may not be God's direct judgment on our sin, that is yet to come. But it is his reminder. It's his knock on the door that we are mortal. Memento mori. And we must one day give account to him. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rise a deaf world. Indeed, all the events that we see are reminders and alarm bells. We need to memento mori. And remember that one day we will face our maker. Do you know, Jesus was told about some bad news that had happened of a disaster in Jerusalem. And when the news came to him, he turned to the crowd and said, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. What does that mean? He didn't mean that if they repented, they would avoid the coronavirus, but rather that the way for true life, eternal life lay in repenting, starting with him and coming to faith in Jesus himself. And I owe this quotation, this text from uh, Second Chronicles to Dr. Igo Onakpuya from our congregation who sent it to me. And it goes this way. If my people 
who are called by my name, will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. At the heart of becoming a Christian, a believer, is repentance, turning away. It's a military command. It means about turn, turn from your sin, from the principle within you and come to faith in Jesus. And he will show us and take us through every way. Ah, but I'm getting ahead of myself, aren't I? This is Ruth's story. Her times reflect much about our situation. So we read that with this family of Elimelech and Naomi and his two sons, that the house of bread where they lived had become empty. Bank accounts were cleaned out. Shortages of food and disease ravaged the land. So it was time to leave, to self-isolate somewhere else and for a temporary period. So Elimelech took his wife and his sons, Malon and Kilian, and they went to Moab where there was food. And they met two nice girls when they were out there. Malon married a girl called Ruth and Kilian married Orpah. Temporary became permanent. Now they were a complete family, waiting for the grandchildren to come along and soon a great future ahead. But it wasn't to be. Instead, COVID-1100 BC came along and Elimelech died. And over the coming years, so did his two sons, Malon and Kilian. There would be no descendants, no family, no future. And in her grief, Naomi declared that she, whose name means pleasant, was now to be called bitter, Mara. She thought life had ended for her, and mistakenly, she thought God had abandoned her. I'll quote, the Lord has turned away from me, in verse 13. The Lord has afflicted me, in verse 21. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. We must never think that, because it's not true. And turning to her daughter, she said, it's time you went back home to your family, your culture, your gods. For Naomi, it was time for her to return to her home, where it, we read, the Lord had come to the aid of his people. What to do? Two different responses. Orpah left. Ruth refused to go. And she clung to her mother-in-law and chose instead uncertainty, poverty, and prejudice ahead with little hope of family life and love. And then she declared one of the greatest commitments of all time of love, faith, and dedication that's in our literature anywhere. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Note how closely she was prepared to stick to Naomi. Go, stay, die, and be buried. She identifies personally with Israel, my people, and with the God of Israel, my God, she says. She's clearly come to faith in the living God, become part of the church of God, and identifies with the people of God forever. And then she makes her commitment crystal clear. She takes on an oath never to be broken. 
May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Now, a woman could not take a vow in the Old Testament days without permission of her husband. She didn't have a husband anymore. He was dead. And so to her mother-in-law she vowed, but calling on the name of the Lord as her witness. There is none higher than that. If you examine the text a bit more closely, and I'm hoping that some of you may have your Bibles open, you will note in the book of Ruth that the word Lord occasionally is in capitals, capital L-O-R-D. And when the Hebrew trans, uh, the, uh, who wrote, the Hebrews who wrote this and the English translators looked at it, they normally, when they read the word Lord in the Old Testament, would express it in lowercase. And it means the same as it does in English, uh, a master, a, uh, a king or a ruler. So that's what that means. But when they printed it in capitals, it meant something completely different. It's not the word Lord at all, in fact. It's a substitute word because the scribes refused to write down the very personal name of God, and instead they put this substitute of L-O-R-D in it. And so the English translations do exactly the same in most cases. What does it mean? Well, at the burning bush, when Moses asked God for his name, God would have none of it. Humanity gives names to its own gods and forms them in its own image. God would have none of that. Instead, he did not give a name to Moses. He gave a verb. And the name is expressed as Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, as we would probably read it uh, in Hebrew. And this means I am who I am. Sometimes translated as I will be who I will be. You see, God is not going to be confined to a puny human name, but he was, he is, he is to come. He is outside time, past, present, and future. He is. Nothing else exists in comparison. He always was and always will be. Moses asked God, who are you? God said, who do you think you are asking me? And God explains, he is the I am, the only true and ultimate reality. And that is what the Lord in capitals is referring to in your English Bibles. And that is who Ruth claimed to be her God, now and forever. He is our Lord, the I am. Jesus taught, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews knew exactly what he meant by that phrase. He taught, I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the good shepherd, the door, and so on. He is our I am forever. He is Ruth's I am. Is he yours? Do you really know him? and love him, the one who outside of time stepped into time and took the sins of time on his old shoulders. That was Jesus. He is in full control of our situation, yesterday, today, and forever, and was so for Ruth, and can be for you. Christ has died, it says over there. Christ is risen. Christ is coming again. God is still on the throne, and he will remember his own. 
Though trials may press us and burdens distress us, he never will leave us alone. God is still in the throne and he will remember his own. His promise is true. He will not forget you. God is still on the throne. Amen.